Here from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 19, on this Palm Sunday, hear God's holy word. After Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we ask you to transform us by this encounter with your word today. Help us to receive these things and to understand them. Fill us with your spirit that we might hear uh, more and more about our Savior and learn more about who he is and what he did uh, through his work on earth on our behalf. And so we praise you for him. We praise you for the word. Help me by your spirit to articulate these things clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if any of you got to see the Apollo 11 documentary that was in theaters uh, several weeks ago. It came and went pretty quickly, and it was just titled Apollo 11. Maybe some people thought it was the prequel to Apollo 13 and thought, well, I haven't seen Apollo 13 in a while, so maybe I... But Apollo 11 wasn't a drama. It wasn't an, an adventure. It was a documentary. And, and if you get a chance to see it on DVD or streaming, it, it really is worth your time. It was an hour-by-hour -hour recap of the first moon mission with beautifully remastered footage. Some, some footage I had never, I'd never seen before, and it was edited in such a way that it, it looked less like a historical artifact and more like this very near, thrilling, incredible, unbelievable adventure of exploration that it was. And, and watching it, it's almost like it happened yesterday. I was so drawn in at one point when the uh, this module had to link up with that module and they had to just do it perfectly and if they missed each other well then that would have messed up everything and it was so it was so intense and it was it was th so thrilling I, 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 I forgot to breathe it, it was so um, near and it was like I was seeing these things uh, for the very first time the one bit of culture shock though that brought me back to 2019 it wasn't the haircuts it wasn't the fashions. It wasn't the fact that moon missions probably couldn't happen today. Sarah shared that thought with me later, that we live in a world that's way too safe for that kind of recklessness. If you knew what those guys actually did and put their lives, the, 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 the dangers were manifold for, for what they engaged themselves in. No, the one, the one event that seemed the most distant and historic was the ticker tape parade that they held for the astronauts in Manhattan. Of course, that's back in the day when there was still such a thing as ticker tape. There were these machines, and many of you know, there were these machines that were connected by telegraph lines to a news agency or a news service, and they continuously fed long strips of, strips of paper called ticker tape, right? And it printed headlines or stock uh, prices or baseball scores on the on the tape and at the end of the day you were left with all of this ticker tape that you could save to throw out the window at the next parade and make all these streamers float down to the street. Uh, today I think they just empty paper shredders out the window. Is that what they do at, at parades? But, but it wasn't even the ticker tape that, that, that drew me back to today that seemed so distant. The, the thing that, that was so uh, distant and, and seemingly um, anachronistic for our present day the thing that shocked me was the fact that once upon a time, 
we had real heroes that you would parade through a city and rejoice in. There were, there were guys who did incredible things that we made such a big deal about them and we, we gloried in them. They did extraordinary, exceptional things and we celebrated their accomplishments. I think the closest thing we have today is like a Super Bowl parade or a World Series parade. But, but while those guys do things that most of us can't do, I'm not sure that they're heroic things. And I'm not saying we don't have heroes. I'm saying that we don't treat them the way we treated those heroes. In the last 25 years, there have been 11, quote, ticker tape parades in Manhattan. There have been 11 ticker tape parades. 10 of them were for athletes, for Super Bowls or World Series or Olympics. 10 of the 11 were for athletes. One of them was for John Glenn again in uh, 1998 when he went up in the space shuttle. So he got another one uh, in, the, in the late 90s. Um, not to make, make too much of that, you know, it's just, it's just one thing, but maybe it is just one indicator of what we value most as a society. And what's the point of a parade anyway? And I'm, I'm not talking about the TV, you know, Thanksgiving Day parade where you have high school bands and then you have C-list celebrities dancing and lip syncing with Nickelodeon characters. I'm not, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about triumphal parades for heroes and explorers. That's, that's the kind of parade I'm talking about. You bring them through the city in a procession so that everybody can look at them. You can say, hey, yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy that did the thing. That's him. Look at him there. And, and you cheer for them and, and you let them know how much you appreciate them. The whole city comes out to appreciate them. And then you get that moment of connection. You know, he's waving, you're waving. I think he waved at me. I think he saw me. And he looked at me in the eye and he waves and you wave back. It's really special to get that moment of connection. And of course, in a day and a time before photography or before television, or before the internet, uh, that would be your one chance to say, oh, yeah, that's what that guy looks like. Oh, oh so that's what the president looks like. I've never seen him before. He's, you know, I might have seen a, a painting or a wood carving, but there he is in, in person. I get to see him live and share in the glory of the moment. Triumphal processions, of course, were a staple in the ancient world, so that anytime there was a great military victory, anytime there was some great heroic feat, and we have the champion coming back into the city, all the populace, everybody floods out to go meet him and dance and sing and play on instruments and bring them back into the city. It's like when you have friends who you haven't seen in a long time uh, visit your house and you know they're coming. You don't, you don't lay on the couch with the remote and you hear them knock on the door and you say, yeah, it's open, let yourself in. Uh, and hey, how you doing? Just watching something here. That's not what you do. At least that's what I, I hope that's not what you do, especially for friends you haven't seen in a long time. No, you run out and you greet them on the driveway and you want to you escort them into the house. You go out and meet them and you bring them back in and your kids probably go wait at the corner, go wait at the street corner to watch them come up. Hey, they're here, they're here. And then everybody floods out of the house and then brings them back into the house. There's this overjoying, uh, overflowing joy and exuberance with which you greet them. You go out and meet them and you bring them back in. And that's the scene in Luke's gospel as Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem to carry out his final work of obedience. 
through his death and his burial and his resurrection. When Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem for the last time, he doesn't enter the city privately or stealthily. He couldn't have entered secretly if he tried, honestly. There's been so much buildup as Jesus has gradually made his way south from Nazareth throughout his ministry, working his way from Nazareth to Jerusalem through villages and towns, dipping over into Gentile territory briefly and coming back, healing and teaching and feeding and challenging the Pharisees. His influence has been growing steadily. And everybody has the sense, as he draws near to Jerusalem, everyone has the sense that this is the showdown. Now we get to the main event, so to speak. Jesus is coming and he's crashing up against the temple and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priests and the Jewish courts and, and Herod's house and the Roman authorities. All of this is coming to a head with all of these frictions and tensions, this wave of momentum that Jesus has, something has got to give. In John's gospel, we know that right before this event, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And behind the scenes, the chief priests and the Pharisees are conspiring together to put Jesus to death. Jesus is on a collision course with all of the worldly powers based in the city of Jerusalem. And what happens there is going to result in his enthronement and his ascension. So the movement in these verses is up. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill, number one, but also because it's a city of preeminence and prominence. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. He goes up the Mount of Olives. He goes up to Calvary before he comes up from the grave and right on up to the right hand of the Father. But as you know, before he is fully enthroned up at the right hand of the Father and he's set up over all the earth, he's going to have to go down. His road to ascension goes through suffering. You have to go through tribulation before you get to elevation. But, but the ups here are pointers to where he eventually ultimately is headed. This is, this is upward language. We see him first in the villages outside of Jerusalem. Bethany is where he's staying with his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then while he's staying in these towns outside of Jerusalem, he deliberately initiates a conversation with Jerusalem by sending two of his disciples into the city to find a cult. Now, this is Luke's gospel. He just calls it a cult, but we've already read Matthew's gospel because these came in order. We got Matthew's gospel first. And we found out that it was a donkey. We know that it was a donkey. And, uh, and so Mark and Luke just refer to it as a colt. It's a young donkey on whom no one has ever ridden, and it's been saved for this purpose. God has saved it for his son, Jesus. And when people see the disciples of Jesus going into the city and leading a donkey out of the city, they're going to ask, hey, where are you going with that donkey? And Jesus tells them, when you get that question, hey, where are you going with that donkey? I have an answer for you. I want you to say something very specific because Jesus is deliberately initiating uh, this, this conversation. And the, and the answer they're supposed to give is because the Lord has need of it. And when you say that, where are you going with that donkey? Um, the Lord needs it. Their eyes are going to get big. Their ears are open. Their mouths are going to drop. Their jaws are going to drop. And they're going to say, oh, oh. We know what's happening here. Verse 32. So those who were sent went their way 
and found it, that is the colt, the donkey, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, as Jesus said would happen, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus upon him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Well, why do our jaws drop and why do our eyes get big and why does our heart start racing when we say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is about to ride into the city on a donkey. Why is that so exciting? Well, Israel's kings ride donkeys. Why do they ride donkeys? It's because God explicitly prohibited them from multiplying horses. The pagan nations build these massive cavalries with horses and chariots, but we don't, we don't need that because Yahweh fights our battles for us. So we can ride on donkeys. When we first meet King Saul, remember, he's looking for his father's donkeys, and that's very kingly of him at the very beginning. David rides a donkey in the wilderness. We saw just a few weeks ago when uh, the, the, the helpers met David with donkeys, and David, uh, David is associated with donkeys. But later in his life, David rides a mule, and he passes on his mule to Solomon, and Solomon rides a mule into Jerusalem. You know, a mule is a hybrid between a horse and a donkey. And Solomon rides a mule into Jerusalem at his anointing and coronation. Not a horse, but a mule. Remember, Absalom rode mules. And when, I, when we saw that, I pointed that out. And I said, well, it looks like we're about halfway to horses, doesn't it? And, it, and, uh, and Solomon starts off on a mule. And by 1 Kings 4, Solomon's got 40,000 horses and chariots. And he doesn't stop there. You know, he's also prohibited from multiplying wives and gold. And Solomon multiplies those as well. And he sets the kingdom up to be ripped apart. And he sets them up for the chaos and calamity that follows. But Jesus is not a disobedient son. And Jesus is not a disobedient king. Jesus is the king in submission to his father. So he rides a donkey like Israel's kings of old were to ride. He doesn't multiply wives. Jesus has one bride. He has the church. Jesus doesn't multiply earthly wealth and gold. That, 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 doesn't, uh, that doesn't matter to him, uh, especially not now in this part of his ministry. So he asks specifically for a donkey. And everybody who sees this knows what's happening. They all know their Bibles. They know the true king rides on a donkey. And they remember Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's in, it's in uh, uh, fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that Jesus gets on a donkey and rides it into Jerusalem. And everybody sees this and everybody knows what's happening. And they, they, they know when Jesus gets a donkey, it's on, it's, it's coming, it's happening. Now, now, on a side note, and I've got to mention this, um, but I'm not quite sure what it means, but I'm going to say it anyway. When we get to Revelation, Jesus is conquering the nations on a white horse, right? He's, he's conquering the world and he's riding on a white horse. Jesus is the ascended, mature, enthroned second Adam. He is the mature, complete resurrection man. And so, especially on the other side of, of, of the resurrection, of course, Jesus is not at all tempted by worldly strength. He is strength. He is power and might. And then we find out later, a little bit later in Revelation, that his army behind him rides horses. So it seems like there's a maturation there, perhaps, that we don't, we don't ride donkeys forever, not even metaphorical donkeys. You know, I don't, I don't have a donkey. I know you don't have donkeys, maybe... Somebody does, but I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in terms of metaphor. 
we eventually get to ride horses into battle against the principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. So perhaps that has something to do with the maturation of the covenant. Something to think about. Jesus rides a donkey here, but after his resurrection, he gets a white horse and, and he gets a war horse on which he rides as he conquers the nations. Um, I'm still meditating on that, but maybe something to think about. Well, this donkey here on this day is made into a throne for Jesus. And this is signified when the disciples place their cloaks on the donkey. Our clothes represent us. Your uniform shows who you are and what kind of work you do. Doctors wear white coats and scrubs. A police officer wears his uniform. You get help in a department store by looking for, you know, if you're wearing the color of the shirt that's on the sign of the store, well, then you must work here, right? So don't ever wear a blue shirt to Best Buy. Uh, you, you get all kinds of questions you can't answer. But the people who work there can't answer those questions either. So I guess you're right, you're right in the middle of it. But um, so, um, but, but your clothes represent you and they, they show what you're doing and they show what you're there for. And so when you take your robe off or you take your cloak off and you put it under somebody else, now they are over you. You are on top of me. And then the people come out from the town and they start putting their clothes on the ground. Uh, Luke's gospel doesn't tell us about the uh, palm branches, though we still call this Palm Sunday. Maybe the Sunday that we get Luke's uh, gospel in the lectionary, we should call this cloak Sunday because it's the cloaks that they're spreading out on the ground. But the, but the image is, is um, it's easy to see what's happening. Uh, Jesus is, is over us. We are putting ourselves under him and he is over us as our king. So now word is spreading about Jesus's entry into the city and the people are pouring out to meet him. Verse 37. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of Yahweh, peace in heaven and, and glory in the highest. He comes down the Mount of Olives and onto the main road leading into Jerusalem. And this is where the main body of people meet him. They, they greet him and they are there to bring him back in the city to escort him in with rejoicing and with singing. And, and that's also the image Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians, isn't it? When Jesus comes back on that great day of the Lord, the saints go up to meet him in the air and then they come back with him to reign on earth. They go up and then they escort him back down. And that's exactly what's happening here. This vast multitude turns out into this impromptu parade and this procession into the city. They're there to be part of the glory of Jesus, to, to be part of this great moment. Glory is shared socially. We all want to be part of something great. We want to be part of something beautiful and grand. That's, that's why we get excited for uh, sports teams when they win, as silly as it is sometimes. And I didn't, I didn't play that game. I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, I couldn't if I tried, probably. I couldn't do any of those things. I would be a detriment rather than a help. Uh, but I'm excited because that, the, that team is representing my hometown or that team is representing us. And I'm happy for them. They make me proud. They represent me. In the same way, uh, we all share in glory together. So we share in their glory when they do something great. And we share in each other's glory. When good things happen for you, we give thanks. And we all get to share in the happiness together. And that's what is happening here. They sing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now think about that just for a minute. We say some of these things so often that they just roll right over us and we don't think about what they mean. Peace in heaven. 
That's kind of odd, isn't it? There's always peace in heaven, isn't there? Of course there's peace in heaven. No, not, not yet. There's war in heaven. There's still conflict in the heavenlies. I mean, they've read the book of Job. They know that Satan wanders into God's courtroom. They know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And they're looking for the total victory that comes when Satan is cast out of heaven ultimately, as, as Jesus said earlier, when he saw Satan fall like lightning. Satan's humiliating defeat, his crushing is imminent. Remember what the angels sang about 33 years before this at Jesus' birth. What did the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So we want peace in heaven and glory in heaven and peace on earth that flows out of the glory and the peace and the order that's in heaven. And so now they're singing on this day. This is becoming a reality through this king riding on this donkey over us and with us. This king and his work will cause the heavens to rejoice and glorify God. And then earth can finally have peace. Now, I've pointed out many times um, that the, the same crowd that shouts this day, you know, all these praises will shout crucify him before the end of the week. And uh, there's something to be said there about the fickleness of Israel. But I, I, as I think about it, I want to modify that slightly. I think this, this is not necessarily the exact same crowd. And no doubt there were some there on that day. Certainly there could have been um, some who sang this who might have said crucify him. But when Jesus is coming into the city, there are people who are saying all kinds of different things. Um, there, there's a whole range of opinions on Jesus. There are some who are just watching. There are some who are rejoicing and dancing. But there are some who are criticizing the whole thing. As John read this morning, um, uh, Saul's daughter criticized David as he sang and danced his way into Jerusalem. And, and so there are some this day who are doing the exact same thing, repeating, uh, repeating her sin. And some of the people in the crowd were telling the singers to can it. Why don't you be quiet? Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The Pharisees, above all, understand the implications of what the people are shouting, and they think, well, Jesus, your theology is better than that, right? You, you know better than that. They can't say that about you. You're not really, you don't really think you're the Messiah, do you? Well, Jesus answers and says, if these would keep quiet, the stones would cry out. What stones is he referring to? Is he talking about the rocks laying around on the ground? What, what's he referring to? This may be a reference back to Habakkuk. In, in Habakkuk 2.11, the, the, the prophet is pointing forward to the Babylonian invasion. Uh, Habakkuk lives before Jerusalem and Judah are taken out by Babylon, and, and Habakkuk is warning everyone that this is coming. And, and Habakkuk says that the very stones of the city and the stones of the houses testify against Israel. And this is what Habakkuk says, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. And here's what the stones say. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. So it's as if woes and judgment are stored up in the very walls of the city. Uh, judgment is stored up in the stones of the houses, and that will be unleashed on the day of the Lord when the walls come down and the city is all rubble. And, and that's exactly what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed the temple and destroyed the city. He unleashed the judgment that was stored up in the stones of the city. 
Now, Jesus could be reminding the Pharisees here, hey, look, you know Habakkuk, right? You read that? If, if you don't praise me like this, if they don't praise me like this, the stones of the city testify against you. And remember that they have judgment stored up in them. The walls cry out judgment on the city. And this city is coming down again if you don't repent and join in this song. And of course, that's exactly what happens about 40 years later. This time, Rome's army tore down the walls and the city and the temple. As Jesus gets closer to the city, he starts to weep. Everyone's having a party, but he's weeping, and he knows what is really happening here. Verse 41, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you, to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Um, if only you had known the things that make for your peace, Jesus says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Salam, Shalom. Jerusalem is peace city. They're supposed to know God's peace. They're supposed to be the headquarters for God's peaceful kingdom for the whole world. But they put the prophets to death. And right now there are, there are plots to kill Jesus. They don't know peace and they don't accept peace when it's extended them. So the day is coming when they will be surrounded by their enemies and not one stone is resting upon another. Where does that come from? Um, that image of, of not one stone left upon another is a, I think it's a callback to Leviticus 14 and the prescription for what to do if your house has leprosy. Now, when you read that, you think, well, wait a minute, how can your house have leprosy? Well, leprosy in the Bible, the word and the, and the condition that's described as lepr leprosy is not the same thing that we call leprosy today. What we call leprosy is really known as Hansen's disease. It's a bacteria that gets into your skin and um, it, it affects you in a different kind of way. The, the leprosy in the Bible was something else entirely. It was a kind of a plague or a mold that, that not only could make you sick, but it got in the walls of your house. And in Leviticus, it's described as having green or red streaks. So I don't know if we have anything precisely like this today. And we're not, it's kind of a mystery what leprosy was in the Bible. But in Leviticus 14, we read what happens if it gets in your house. If you think you have leprosy in the walls of your house, the first thing you do is you call a priest. And the priest comes and he checks it out. And what he is supposed to do is shut all the doors, all the windows, lock up the house, and leave it for seven days. Nobody goes in. Nobody, nobody messes with it. Seven days later, if he comes back in and it's cleaned up, it's cleared up, well, then everything's fine. He announces that the house is clean, and you can live in it, and it's just fine. If he comes back and the green or red streaks are still in the walls, in the stones, in the beams, you have to cut out those infected pieces of the house and cast them outside the city. You have to cast them in a defiled place. You have to put them in a refuse heap. Don't put them in the city, put them way outside the city and rebuild and, and fix the parts of the house that are broken. Now, if you do that, and then at some point later, you find, well, there it is again. There's that, there's that plague, there's that, that leprosy in the house. You call the priest back for a third inspection 
And then if he says it's leprosy, he has to break down the house stone by stone, knock down its timbers so that there's nothing left and not one brick is left upon another. Now, Jesus, I think, is using that very same language, calling uh, Jerusalem a defiled city. The city has leprosy in its stones, in its beams, in its walls, and specifically the temple has leprosy. It is defiled. It is corrupt. It is a ruin. So, so think about this and hold on to this for just a second. What does Leviticus 14 tell us? You get two visits from the priest initially, and then on the third visit, if the leprosy hasn't cleared up, the house is coming down. It's, it's done. Keep that in mind. Two initial visits and then a demolition. So let's pick up in verse 45. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear them. Jesus comes into the city and goes straight to the temple. Now, how many times in Jesus' ministry does he come to the temple to inspect it and to cleanse it? John's gospel has Jesus visiting the temple right after his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. Right after the wedding in Cana, Jesus goes to the temple and he runs out the money changers and he disrupts the, the business that's going on at the, at the temple. He, he, out of zeal for his house, he cleanses the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all put this cleansing of the temple right after his entry into the city. Now you might ask, well, when did it happen? Did it happen at the beginning of his ministry or did it happen at the end? Is John kind of scrambled up on the events? Does John not uh, understand the timeline? Well, um, think about this. So Jesus comes at the beginning of his ministry. He visits the temple and he finds out it's corrupt. It's defiled. They're abusing it. It's not a house of prayer for all nations. It's a den of thieves. He does that at the beginning of his ministry, and then he comes back at the end of his ministry, and he finds that it is still diseased. It is still leprous. It is still defiled. Two visits, and then the third time Jesus comes, he comes in judgment. He comes in on the day of the Lord in AD 70, and that's when he pulls it down brick by brick, timber by timber. He destroys the entire thing. So, um, these various rituals in God's law, they always have their uh, connection and, and they, they are always linked up to the broader context of the spiritual condition of the people of God. So some of these things have, you know, they leave us scratching our head and think, well, what, is, what does that mean? What are we supposed to do that? But we have to think about what house they're really talking about and what does the plague or the disease represent. The temple is obviously corrupt. Though it was meant to be a connection between heaven and earth, it was meant to be a model of God's heavenly courtroom. It is diseased and it is coming down. And that's what these actions. So it seems that Jesus comes at the beginning of his ministry. He comes at the end. And then on the day of the Lord on AD 70, he comes and pulls it, pulls it apart following uh, the prescription Leviticus. Because this temple was not at this point anything like what God designed it to be. Remember... Jacob's vision of angels ascending and descending on the ladder. The temple was to be that kind of ladder to heaven. The priests move around in the temple like 
angels. They're even dressed like angels, ascending and descending from heaven, bringing God's word down to us, bringing our words up to God. The movement and direction of temple worship is all up to God, but under the care of this generation, it's become a den. It's become a hole in the ground. Instead of going up, they've dug, dug, a, dug a pit and they've gone down into it. And, and so they're not a prayer, a house of prayer to all nations. They're just wallowing in this hole. And so Jesus warns his people and he woos them at the same time, just as he does, does for his church. And so we have to stop there and ask the question, as Jesus comes to inspect his church today, what is his judgment? Is he pleased or is he displeased with his bride, the church? Is she a house of prayer for all nations? Is she a ladder to heaven with angels, his messengers, his servants descending and ascending? Or is she a den? Has his church dug a hole in the ground and just crawled into it? Uh, no longer bringing his word down, no longer carrying his words up. Um, is she just wallowing in a hole as they were? Well, I always remember this, that Jesus loves his church. He's the judge of his church, but he's also her husband. He loves her. She's his bride. But, but like a jealous husband of an unfaithful wife, he can be provoked to anger, both against her covenant breaking and against the adulterers she spends her time with. So, so again, in the same breath, Jesus woos his bride and he warns her, he calls her and he corrects her. He, he weeps over his bride just as he did Israel. If only you knew the things that would make for your peace. Righteousness in some respects is so simple. Sin takes so much effort. It's so easy to be faithful. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Unless you possibly get in your head somehow that when I talk about the correction or the judgment of Jesus, and you think, oh, Jesus must be some kind of tyrant, some kind of bully, some kind of narcissist. Hear this. So he comes to the city as a priest, inspecting the house for leprosy. He comes as the messianic king who's about to set up his righteous rule. He comes as the prophet who declares his judgment of the city. But then in a surprising twist, he comes and then takes upon himself all of this judgment that he announces. All of the judgment, all of the punishment, the chastisement that the city deserves, the chastisement that we deserve, he takes on his own back and on his own head. And he receives it in his own hands and his own feet. We deserve the whip, but he took it. We deserve the shame and the separation from God. We deserve the scoffing, but he took it. We deserve the exposure and the agonizing death, but he goes through it. Jesus rides triumphantly into the city and he says the city and the temple are going to be destroyed. But what happens first is Jesus is destroyed. Forty years later, the city is pulled apart, but the immediate fulfillment of everything that Jesus says here is that Jesus is the one who's pulled apart. Jesus is the one who's torn in two. Jesus is the one that is poured out taken apart like a house that's brought down to ruin. Jesus comes under judgment. Jesus is the one who is crucified. Jesus is the one who loses everything. He takes upon himself the judgment that he announces to the city. And by the time judgment actually comes to Jerusalem, the ones who suffer are the ones who haven't listened to him. They haven't come under his care and protection. They've ignored his urgent appeals to get out of Jerusalem. They stubbornly stay holding on to the old world, turning back just like Lot's wife, turned back to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they perish. But those in union with Jesus have life. They have already passed through judgment with Jesus. He has been their offering, 
and they are spared. So when Jesus comes and when he visits, when Jesus draws near, he points out the corruption, he blesses the faithful, he rejoices with us, we share in his glory, we rejoice in him and with him, and, and he gathers us up and he passes through the judgment and he, he takes it on himself and then his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His ascension becomes ours. His glory becomes ours. So today, in worship, we have gone out to greet him, and we bring him back, and now he's inspected us, and we've confessed our sins, and he's rejoiced with us, and he has sheltered us under his care. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of his visitation. And we are those who have received his peace, who have heard his call. And we rejoice and delight in him. But there's possible, it's, it's, it's a possibility that there are hearts and minds in the sound of my voice that are kind of like the Pharisees. And they go, why are you making such a big deal about this? This is nothing. This is, this is not a big deal. You know, what, what are you doing? Uh, that, that, you know, is, you, you know you're, you're making a big deal about nothing. So he calls you too to drop your vain philosophy, your, your secular ideology, and take up the cross. Identify with the cross and the man upon it. Repent of all your sins and embrace him. Trust him and obey him. That is his call when he gets into the city. And we'll walk through the next few days with him over Good Friday and Easter to come. But now, let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for the Savior who comes into the city uh, to both uh, call her to repentance, to deliver her, and to take her judgment upon himself. So, Father, we rest in this Savior, we rest in this King, and we pray that you would lift our hearts up to you uh, as we continue to worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.